Hello and welcome to the MEMSA Crossing Borders Contesting Boundaries podcast series. In this, our final episode of the academic year, we are delighted to share a very special keynote paper from Professor Cynthia Neville. Professor Neville is a distinguished historian of law and society in medieval Scotland. Her publications include the monographs Violence, Custom and Law, the Anglo-Scottish Borderlands in the Later Middle Ages, published by Edinburgh University Press in 1998, Native Lordship in Medieval Scotland, the Earldoms of Strathern and Lennox, circa 1140 to 1386, Far Court Press 2005, and Land, Law and People in Medieval Scotland, Edinburgh 2010, as well as many articles and book chapters. She's Professor Emeritus at Dalhousie University and since 2019 has been an adjunct professor at the University of Guelph. Professor Neville has very kindly agreed to share some of her most recent research with us for this special keynote episode as part of the lead up to our annual summer conference this July. Her paper for the Crossing Borders Contesting Boundaries podcast series is entitled The Lives of a Medieval Treatise on Anglo-Scottish Border Law. The little treatise known as Leges Marciarum, which I will be referring to today as LM for brevity, has much to offer scholars interested both in the operation of medieval Scots law and in the history of legal writing and legal thought more generally in that kingdom. While the origins and elaboration of the distinctive laws that govern the settlement of disputes in the Anglo-Scottish borderlands in the period before 1603 have received close attention and are now well understood, scholars have asked far fewer questions about the manuscript witnesses of the LM that medieval and early modern jurists regularly acknowledged as the written foundations and indeed authoritative statements of March law. Historians have devoted even less consideration to the place of the LM texts within the broader body of the old laws of Scotland, which Alice Taylor has recently written about at some length. The aims of my research project, beyond a full critical edition then, include a clear understanding of the place of LM in the context of 13th century lawmaking in Scotland, but also the place of the treatise in the, by now well-documented, efforts of late medieval and early modern lawyers to construct a distinctive legal past for the Kingdom of Scotland. Historians have long been familiar with the text of Legae's Marciarum, which records an agreement purportedly made on the Scottish side of the border in 1249 by a group of 12 English and 12 Scottish knights tasked with putting into writing the laws and customs that had traditionally governed the settlement of disputes in the border region of each realm. LM was printed in Volume 1 of the Acts of the Parliaments of Scotland in 1844. In 1971, moreover, the late Ian Ray published in a miscellany volume of the Stair Society a new edition of the Treatise of 1249 that had initially been made in 1902 by the lawyer and scholar George Nielsen. Here, the treatise appeared in a side-by-side text in modern English, allegedly translated from a single Latin exemplar, and in Middle Scots. The Nielsen Ray edition, in turn, became the foundation of a great deal of subsequent research beginning with Ray's own classic studies of the administration of the Scottish frontier in the late Middle Ages, and more recently, underpinning works by Geoffrey Barrow, Henry Summerson, Bill Scott, Jackson Armstrong, and not least, myself. Close study of the earliest recensions of LM quickly made it apparent that the text printed in APS 1 is thoroughly unsatisfactory. Although the editor stated that he was printing the treatise without alteration, and I quote, from the earliest manuscript version, now known as the Byrne Manuscript. Elsewhere, he relegated to a footnote in tiny print a statement to the effect 
that he had, in fact, quote, made one or two corrections to this text from other authorities, end quote. Some of those changes I'll turn to in just a moment. More surprising and rather dismaying was the finding that Nielsen's versions of LM, one in modern English and one in Middle Scots, are also problematic as authoritative representations of the context of the text. In first place, Nielsen had crafted his modern English translation on the basis of the faulty text printed in APS 1. Second, he brought into print a Middle Scots version of the text transcribed from National Library of Scotland, Advocates Manuscript 719, datable to the third quarter of the 16th century. Comparison of the Nielsen Ray vernacular text with that original NLS National Library of Scotland manuscript, however, shows several errors in either Nielsen's or Ray's transcription. And, as is the case with the Latin version in APS 1, some silent editorial emendations of the original manuscript text. To give you but one example, in the earliest Latin version of the LM treatise, the text breaks off abruptly, literally in the middle of a word, owing to the loss of a folio leaf. Nielsen silently created a working English translation for this non-existent portion of the original work. If not ex nihilo, then at least on the basis of the closing paragraph of that same late 16th century manuscript I noted a moment ago. To further complicate matters, neither Nielsen nor his later editor Ian Ray was aware of the existence of two other Middle Scots recensions of the LM treatise, each of which has unique features. There are several other flaws in the Nielsen Ray version, some of them of even more concern than the issues I've raised to date. Collectively, Codicological and textual problems alone make it clear that reliable editions of both the Latin and the vernacular Scots manuscripts of LM have yet to be produced. The earliest extant version of LM appears in the Byrne manuscript, or more formally, National Records of Scotland, manuscript PA51. Byrne is a weighty and comprehensive compendium of Scottish and English legal materials, the nature and purpose of which are not yet fully understood, but which seems to have been a kind of reference work for a lawyer whose practice required familiarity with forms of action on both sides of the Anglo-Scottish border. Hector McQueen has suggested connections with the Balliol family, Bill Scott equally plausibly with the Earls of Dunbar. Its chief importance in the context of my talk today is the fact that its compiler, for apart from some later editorial insertions, the Byrne manuscript is written in a uniform hand considered it important in the late 1260s or early 70s to include in his work the terms of a border agreement that was by now almost a generation old. Whether he copied his text from a now-lost original is, I've come to think, unlikely, but that he had a genuine interest in recording and promoting living legal custom is more certain. Contemporary records, Scots and English, reveal that in the late 13th century the procedures set out in LM were in widespread use in the border region, including use of the testimony of mixed English and Scots jurors and recognitors, the establishment of specific levels of compensation with which an offender must redeem or offset his misdeeds, and resort to trial by combat as an appropriate method of proof when the frailties associated with human witnesses threaten the settlement of claims by one party or another. Moreover, while the contents of the LM treatise relate specifically to the settlement of border-related disputes, 
its clauses demonstrate comfortable familiarity with legal practices introduced to the Kingdom of the Scots by the earlier 13th century kings William I and Alexander II, and its terminology a thorough grasp of the legal language current in the mid-13th century. There are many examples here, and I'm looking at all these very closely. The text of LM found in the Byrne manuscript is of interest for many reasons. Most obviously, it captures a moment of close cooperation between England and Scotland that we, who enjoy the gift of hindsight, know would not endure beyond the closing years of the 13th century. Equally important, some of its passages provide corroboration of the operation within Scotland of legal procedures for which there is as yet scant documentary support for the period before the 14th century. A notable example here is the mention in the earliest LM text of asanyes, that is, formal procedures relating to non-appearance of an appeller or defendant in court. In the mid-13th century, the term was well known among English lawyers. Essoines received extensive treatment in Glanville's treatise and were the subject of legislation in the closing years of the reign of Henry III, including, most recently, the Statute of Marlborough, 1267. Essoines are also mentioned in the earliest extant manuscript of the Leges Burgorum, which is also in the Byrne Manuscript but the term does not appear to have enjoyed much circulation in Scotland until the 14th century, when it was made the subject of extensive discussion in the two digests of Scots law, known as Regiam Maestatem and Quoniam Attachiamenta. The LM treatise confirms Scottish familiarity with the Sonyes, if not in 1249, then at least by circa 1270, demonstrating in addition a clear understanding of the difficulties that attended the satisfactory settlement of disputes involving litigants from the vast area that was the border region. Interestingly, Glanville and the Statute of 1267 together account for more than half the Byrne manuscript, and the compiler's interest in Assanyes, among other things, perhaps finds confirmation in the fact that L.M. adds to the substance of the nascent Scots law on the matter in its novel statement that in the border region at least, and I quote, no man may assign himself through death, unquote. Another passage, governing the pursuit and recovery of fugitive knaves, echoes the wording of an enactment of Alexander II dated 1230, but not yet the changes effected to that same legislation by King Robert I in 1318. L.M. would appear to have been compiled by a lawyer thoroughly familiar with the changes to Scots law that had occurred in the previous half-century. Medievalists of all stripes are familiar with the crucial role that law and legal custom played in shaping national identity. The LM text preserved in the Byrne manuscript adds further evidence, if more is needed, that the process of royal lawmaking in this formative period in Scottish history involved making clear statements about the territorial extent of the king's jurisdiction. The agreement of 1249 represented the culmination of several abortive efforts on the parts of Alexander II and Henry III to agree, first, on the sorts of violent offences that merited specific attention, and second, on the ways in which the subjects on one side of the newly established boundary line might secure satisfaction for wrongs done them by the subjects of the other. The version of the Agreement of 1249 that was later incorporated into the Byrne Manuscript almost certainly describes practices that were already very old in the 13th century, 
and historians have duly speculated on the antiquity of the meeting places on the march that the agreement enumerates. But it may also be worth considering whether or not the identification of specific sites for the hearing of accusations in the marches wasn't also intended deliberately to replicate the ancient list of warranting sites that appear in other contemporary manuscripts of the old laws. In the closing years of the 12th century, that list had expanded to include not only places within the old heartland of Scotia, but also the territories of Murray and Galloway, more recently incorporated into the kingdom by William I and Alexander II. The identification of a new set of traditional meeting places in 1249 would certainly have been appropriate in the period following the establishment in 1237 of a new boundary, distinguishing the lands subject to the jurisdiction of the Scottish king from those of his English neighbour. The writer who set out to preserve the agreement reached in 1249 in what became the Bird Manuscript may have copied the text from the now lost exemplar but he was working to a much broader agenda than merely gathering together a miscellany of English and Scottish legal references that he might need to consult in his practice. Byrne is not merely a compendium of legal texts. It also bears witness to an appreciation on the part of its author, some two generations before Regiam Maestatem, of the close association between written statements of royal law and rectal solidarity. Whether or not it accurately reproduced the findings of the Border Commission of 1249, the LM text copied into the Byrne manuscript was intended to make an unambiguous statement about the extent of the Scottish King's jurisdiction over these newly confirmed territories. LM, in short, is a piece of Scottish royal propaganda as much as it is a code of border law. The message was intended perhaps not so much for the King of England but rather for the landholding nobility of Scotland. The officials in whose courts accusations were to be heard were those of the sheriff, who administered the law on behalf of the king, within the king's demean lands. The peace that border offenders broke and that border fugitives might, under some circumstances, legitimately seek was that of the king. In LM, aristocratic landholders who wielded tremendous legal authority within the territories that made up their estates, have very little role to play in the administration of the law. They are the victims of runaway serfs, and they have the right to pursue them. But if they do not do so within 40 days, they need to purchase a royal breve to do so. Likewise, the peace that English fugitives need to secure before they can remain unmolested in Scotland is that of the king. Historians are well aware that for all intents and purposes, both the Scots and the English came to regard the laws of the marches, as articulated in LM, as essentially moribund. There is no doubt that the circumstances that led to open war between the realms in 1296 forced both crowns to find wholly new ways to address the problem of cross-border crime. The consequence of those efforts was the development of an increasingly sophisticated body of new march law developed by the wardens of the marches and eventually experts in civil law and the law of arms. These provisions were now embedded in the increasingly wordy texts of truces sealed by representatives of the two crowns. In England, the LM treatise sank into virtual obscurity. 
not to be resurrected again until the mid-16th century as a relic of the distant past. In Scotland, however, different circumstances prevailed. Far from becoming moribund and irrelevant, the Ellen Treatise went on to enjoy a long and storied life, becoming part of the tradition of good old law that underpins such works as the Legge Scotiae, attributed to David I, and the law books of William and Alexander II that Alice Taylor has recently studied. Like these other works, L.M. was copied many times over, bound together with other treatises into law books, and again, like these other works, occasionally updated and often annotated or glossed. The L.M. of the Byrne Manuscript represents a unique version of the text. It was bound up with other important Scottish legal materials, including the earliest extant copies of both the Legae Scotiae text, attributed to King David I, and the Legae's Borgorum, or Burilaws, some of which were almost a century old by then. LM then was not merely a legal curiosity. In the mind of the Byrne compiler, just like those other works, it represented authentic old law. This LM is unique in other respects, too. Two clauses mention the bishops of St Andrews and Durham in passages that concern the obligation to offer proof by wager of battle and require personal appearance at prescribed meeting places in cases of cross-border crime. Between 1270 and the end of the 14th century, when another copy of L.M. was written and eventually bound into another manuscript, one scribe made a grave error of transcription when he replaced a reference to the Bishop of Durham of the 1249 Agreement with the Bishop of Dunkeld. In all the surviving manuscript witnesses, this error is perpetuated. It even found its way, eventually, into the first printed edition of the Laws of the March by Bishop William Nicholson in 1705. Again, the last remaining paragraph of the Burn L.M. addresses the way in which ownership of a disputed horse, ox, or other animal is to be proven by requiring that the animal be driven into the River Tweed, with the midpoint of the stream being the deciding line. The Tweed alone is mentioned here, but in all subsequent manuscript witnesses of L.M., the clause in question refers to the midstream lines of both the Tweed and the Esk. When Byrne was first compiled, the boundaries of the East March were understood to be the traditional midstream line of the Tweed, but those of the West March remained as yet unspecified and, as it would transpire, disputed. The situation had changed by the time that the next compiler wrote in the later 14th century. These observations and several others, which I haven't got time to talk about here, serve as a timely reminder that a close study of the 21 extant manuscript witnesses of L.M. is long overdue. So too is the identification of the many features that distinguish its several recensions. Despite the fact that the outbreak of the Wars of Independence doomed many of the provisions of 1249 to redundancy, the L.M. Treatise itself retained its reputation in the minds of many lawmen as an authentic representation of Old Scots law. The number of its extant manuscript witness witnesses alone is evidence of the esteem in which lawmen held it. More relevant still to my argument that L.M. was regarded and subsequently retained its status as authentic old law are the sources with which it became associated in its post-1270 iterations. In the 15th and 16th centuries, L.M. was frequently, if not invariably, included in law books that contained 
what were then believed to be traditional legal materials, notably the Leges Scotiae tract, the law codes attributed to Kings William I and Alexander II, and the treatise on Laws of the Sea, known as the Laws of Valeron. In one group of manuscripts, moreover, LM appears directly after the so-called statutes of Alexander II, associating them by proximity, if not strictly by definition, with specific acts of royal legislation of the mid-13th century. Several of the 15th and 16th century recensions make that connection even more explicit by referring to the treatise as, quote, the statutes of the 24, end quote. Even as additional materials were drafted and added to these law collections, including a new set of border-related statutes created in 1448, the reputation of LM as an important and authentic legacy of Scotland's legal and perhaps legislative past endured. More intriguing still are manuscripts that repeatedly brought together the LM treatise, the old laws attributed to Kings David I, William and Alexander II, and copies of Scotland's most celebrated digest of royal law, Regia Majestatum. The compilers of these successive 15th and 16th century law books knew as well as we do that the provisions first found in the Byrne manuscript of circa 1270 had for all intents and purposes been a dead letter since 1296. Yet they continued to accord the LM treatise the status of old law and clearly considered it appropriate to associate it directly with other written exemplars of royal lawmaking. Here I think we have a good example of the ways in which the sum of this manuscript's parts was of greater significance than its specific provisions. That the LM treatise remained a living aspect of the legal culture of late medieval Scotland is apparent finally in efforts to translate the work into the vernacular. There are three such manuscripts, all dating to the mid-16th century. All ironically demonstrate a genuine, if paradoxical, effort to update the treatise, in part to reflect current political conditions and to ensure the use of appropriate vernacular terminology, but surely also to efface those aspects of the original Latin text that might have signaled its antiquarian tenor and so compromised its historical value as authentic law. The names of the twelve Scottish and twelve English recognitors who are said to have gathered in 1249, now long past being familiar and therefore of no longer of any probative value, are replaced in the vernacular texts with references simply to the 24 sworn men. In the 16th century, the ability of clerics to prove accusations of theft or homicide with resort to judicial combat was a thing of the very distant past and indeed would have been a thoroughly noxious concept to contemporary lawmen. But clauses prescribing resort to this method of proof are nevertheless retained in these translations. The system of cross-border pledges, identified in a 13th century LM treatise, although no longer in regular use after 1296, made an apparently smooth transition from Latin into the vernacular texts, though the spelling of this and many other obsolete terms has changed almost beyond recognition. Older references to man-killing in the Latin texts have been updated to the more technical manslaughter of the 16th century. The varieties of terms associated with unfree persons in the 13th century manuscripts 
have been collapsed into the generic term bondman. Like their later medieval Latin language counterparts, the vernacular versions of the LM treatise had little role to play in the adjudication and settlement of actual cross-border offences. Nevertheless, the venerable reputation of the treatise as authentic old law enabled LM to make a seamless transition from Latin into the vernacular. And as has been shown for at least one of these Scots recensions, to circulate widely among amateur, apprentice, and professional lawmen alike. Arrangements for the adjudication of cross-border offences evolved continuously after the outbreak of war in 1296, with the Scottish Parliament occasionally weighing in with statutes designed to provide the wardens with the powers they required to administer March law, most notably under King James I. The ordinances of 1448 that I mentioned a few moments ago represented an effort to elaborate arrangements that had been enacted by James's Parliament. Within just a few years of their genesis, the provisions of 1448 achieved the status of settled, if not genuine, old law. Thus, several of the later manuscript witnesses of LM also include copies of the provisions of 1448, with the opening line of the text almost invariably following directly on the closing words of the LM treatise. Like the treatise, the stuff of the 1448 ordinances was eventually rendered obsolete by new arrangements for the settlement of incidents of cross-border crime. But the text itself lived on as a legal artefact for more than 200 years. While the clauses of the 1249 agreement, on their own or with their post-1448 accretions, bore an ever-diminishing relation to the realities of legal practice in the Anglo-Scottish border region, the Elam Treatise never really became moribund. It continued to be copied, studied, translated and discussed as an authentic exemplar of old Scots law. LM, then, occupied an important place in the efforts of late medieval and early modern jurists to elucidate the legal past of the Kingdom of the Scots. In 1566, the Scottish lawyer David Chalmers, the author of a compendium of ancient Scots law, borrowed passages directly from the LM treatise in his discussion of the laws particular to the border region. So too did Sir James Balfour and Henry Sinclair after him in their respective practice. Like many of their contemporaries, these men were part of a juridical movement, the aims of which were, were to understand the relationship between genuine parliamentary legislation and what they called ancient texts and collections of law. Among these, the law codes of David I, William and Alexander II, a number of other brief treatises, and above all, Regia Majestatum, all of these revered as legacies of the later Middle Ages. Recent scholarship has framed the several projects aimed at reforming the laws of Scotland as a conflict between a profound respect on the part of jurists for the texts of the distant medieval past as they perceived it, and the authority of statute law enacted by the Crown in Parliament. The dating and contents of the manuscript compilations in which LM is found, in fact reveal a compelling connection with the efforts of these late medieval and early modern jurists to reform the laws of their realm. Situating the manuscript tradition of LM firmly within the wider intellectual world of late medieval and early modern juridical thought 
goes some way, I argue, towards explaining the otherwise puzzlingly long life of the treatise. I hope I've given your listeners here an idea of the sorts of questions that are informing my research into this little-studied treatise. Thank you. Hello again. I'm here with Professor Cynthia Neville to discuss her research on the treatise Legus Machiavin. Professor Neville, it's a real honour to have you concluding our podcast series. We're really, really delighted to share some of your most recent research with the Crossing Borders Contesting Boundaries audience and have this opportunity to chat with you about your work. I'm very pleased for going to be here. I'm delighted to uh, share my work with you and with your audience. Thank you. It was a really uh, fascinating paper and such a great fit for the Crossing Borders Contesting Boundaries theme, this international legal system, but in many ways reinforcing national boundaries as well as crossing it. Um, so it's so many ways in which it brings up really interesting questions about social borders and boundaries, national borders and boundaries, legal jurisdiction and so on in the medieval and the early modern world. So it's astonishing to learn that the transcriptions of the LM so many historians have relied on for so long have turned out to have such serious issues, including an entire page which seems to be mostly fabricated or supposedly reconstructed, um, to, if you want to be charitable about it. When did you realise that this was the case? More than 20 years ago now, I published a book that examined the early border laws and their subsequent development in the later medieval period. I noted then the discrepancies between the original versions of the LM text and the printed versions, both in APS, that is Acts of Parliaments of Scotland, and the Scottish History Society Miscellany volume, edited by Ian Ray. At that time, these differences were certainly curiosities to me, but not central to the work I was doing then. It's only over the years, when a great deal more border history has been written, and these errors either overlooked or not apparent, that I've realised a thorough edition of the manuscripts of the Leges was needed. It's important to note, too, that 20-plus years on, after I first wrote a book about the ways in which the border laws developed, we know a great deal more about the peculiarities of the medieval legal systems in both England and Scotland. That alone, I think, requires that historians who use early legal treatises understand the specific contexts in which treatises like LM were written but also how early modern jurists rediscovered and reused them. So the body of laws reflected in the LM um, originally, we're going to talk a bit more about the relationship between the original meeting and the treatise um, in a minute, but the original meeting seems like quite a peaceful, cooperative agreement, uh, meeting between Englishmen and Scots. This, of course, coming before the large-scale attempts to impose the King's suzerainty over Scotland began in the later 13th century. It also seems at this point the borderline itself was quite contentious and sometimes rewritten over time. Could you tell us a bit more about what border society was like in this period and what the relations between English and Scottish borders was like? It's worth recalling that the origins of the so-called common law systems of both realms developed in different ways. In the mid-12th century, more specifically, the idea of a kingdom of the Scots had only fairly recently come to embrace the region below Forth. The old customs and practices that had obtained in the heartland of Old Scotia did not necessarily obtain in the southeast, or indeed the southwest of the realm. The creation of several sheriffdoms in Lothian in the very late 12th century enabled the Alexanders to focus their efforts to expand royal authority in this region, in effect to redraw administrative boundaries, 
in order to establish what one recent scholar has called nodes of local governance. And a series of recent studies on the border regions of both realms reveal the enduring influence of local lords and local custom in the settlement of disputes of all kind. At the same time, and despite the background, aspirational or real, of royal claims to judicial superiority, both the English and the Scottish crowns were aware of the need to resolve cross-border disputes in ways that would not threaten either's claim to jurisdiction over the respective marches of their kingdoms. From their earliest references, the customs and practices relating to cross-border claims in both realms made provision for competing legal processes. They were never intended to apply elsewhere or indeed to supersede the king's authority on either side of the borderline established in 1237. In second place, it's equally important to remember that for much of the 13th century, Scotland and England enjoyed largely friendly relations. The customs and practices said to have prevailed in the marches since time immemorial, a statement that in fact concludes all versions of the LM treatise, were able to flourish in an environment in which aristocrats held land on either side of the border under the allegiance of two kings. In this sense, the early history of border law belongs both to the history of royal lawmaking in each of the realms, but also to an important period in Anglo-Scottish relations, in which the borderline divided two recognisably independent realms, but two realms that remained at peace with each other. So this original agreement was in 1249, or said to be in 1249, but the Byrne manuscript, which we say is the oldest surviving manuscript, is dated to the late 1260s or the early 1270s, and obviously there's a bit of a gap here. Could you tell us more about the Byrne manuscript and how problematic it is as evidence of this much earlier agreement? Byrne is still, after all this time, something of a mystery. Its earliest dating estimate remains 1267, chiefly because it includes a full text of the English Statute of Marlborough of that year. It's latest just a few years after that, owing to other internal evidence. Its purpose is not yet fully understood, though clearly its legal texts were of interest to someone working with or on behalf of a person involved with the practice of the law. Moreover, its inclusion of the LM text is curious compared to the significance of the other items it reproduces. Related to your question, of course, is some uncertainty about whether or not the text of LM that it contains, and remember that this is by far the earliest text of the so-called Agreement of 1249 that we have, is a creation of an English or Scottish author. My views on this have varied quite a bit over the period I've spent examining Bird, though I'm by now pretty sure that it is a Scottish creation, not an English one. Its opening clauses, which identify by name the knights said to have been at the meeting of 1249, have some discrepancies, true, but most of those persons are identifiable as having been, first, actually alive in 1249, and, more certainly, to have been involved in earlier attempts in 1245, 1246, and 1248 to examine the customs relating to the borders, and all of these meetings involving a handful of knights from either side of the border. The reasons why no other copies should have been preserved before the late 1260s may be many, but overall I'm of the opinion that there are several aspects of the manuscript that we can consider trustworthy. The shape of its composition, the themes that unite the author's decision to include the several parts of the law book that he did, 
and the clarity with which the several clauses agreed to in 1249 were set down. Still, I would tend to agree that there is much yet about the burned manuscript that historians can explore. So the LM was one expression of this international legal system, which was distinct, if not replacing, of English and Scottish domestic law, and which allowed for the peaceful resolution of cross-border disputes. How unusual were international legal agreements and legal systems like this? What other sources or other examples could be drawn upon by the people as they developed this Anglo-Scottish legal system? There are several examples of cross-border agreements, such as LM some originating in Britain, others on the continent. Historians have known about British agreements for a very long time. They include, for example, the so-called Treaty of Alfred Guthrum and the Ordinance Concerning the Dunsetta. Both are late Anglo-Saxon texts, originally written in Old English in the later 9th century. Both were intended to facilitate the settlement of disputes between two separate and potentially hostile peoples. Both, finally, have been the subject of a great deal of scholarly scrutiny, uh, the Dunsetta most recently by the fine legal historian Tom Lambert. The LM is not unlike these agreements. Its authors sought to establish a series of procedures that would allow the subjects living on one side of the boundary line established in 1237 to treat with those of another allegiance on the other side. I'm not sure that it was intended to offer peaceful settlements to border disputes, Indeed, some of its clauses openly advocate severe punishments. Nor was it an agreement hammered out in avowedly friendly fashion. Its genesis lay in the quandaries posed when competing systems of royal authority made the effective settlement of cross-border disputes problematic. As to its debt to other international agreements, it seems clear that while some of the procedures described in the treatise were of some antiquity in the 13th century, and I'm exploring these at some length, the treatise itself is a creature of the 13th century, representing a wholly novel effort to regulate affairs across a porous boundary. There's sometimes been a tendency to assume that the Scottish borders were peripheral to the realm as a whole, a distant and isolated part of the country. What does the obvious importance which Scottish jurists placed on the LM over the centuries after it was originally codified suggest about how we should understand this relationship between Scotland's frontier with England and the rest of the realm? The history of the laws of the marches belongs to a series of related studies. The development of a specifically Scottish common law, the extent to which march law both resembled and diverged from the legal norms found in the border regions of both kingdoms, and the extent to which the laws and customs embodied in that treatise were reflections of enduring local custom that transcended the borderline established in 1237. By contrast, Scottish interest in the origins and significance of the Leges Marchiarum Treatise reflects, above all, the determination of late medieval Scottish jurists to understand the nature of Scots common law in the distant past. The interest of early modern jurists in understanding the relationship between manuscript witnesses of old law and the parliamentary-based legislation that underpinned contemporary understandings led to a vigorous study of these ancient texts, many of which uh, I mentioned, in fact, in my talk. Interest in the LM treatise, then, is in one respect part of a larger intellectual movement that sought to define the legislative authority, autoritas, of texts like LM. 
the state of near perpetual war with England in the centuries after 1296, moreover, fundamentally guaranteed ongoing royal interest in the region that lay hard by the Anglo-Scottish border and produced in the later medieval period a series of ordinances regulating the conduct of war and dispute settlement in the marches. The early modern jurists' interest in extra-parliamentary legal custom ensured that they would include in their examination of textual and legal authorities a treatise like LM that they considered foundational. One thing that came through really strongly in your paper was how much the LM asserted regnal authority, reinforcing the power of Crown-appointed sheriffs and curbing the independent authority of local landlords. Do you have any thoughts on how this idea fits with Alice Taylor's ideas about the shape of the state in 12th and 13th century Scotland, that it embraced both the public power of the king and his officials and the private power of the aristocracy rather than the growth of royal power at the expense of the aristocracy? The work of Alice Taylor, but also that of Davy Brown, Sandy Grant and David Carpenter, has, have all been very important in helping us to understand the ways in which the Scottish state operated in the period before 1300. Yet there remains a great deal to write about the ways in which these Scottish kings gave expression to still developing ideas about regnal solidarity and royal jurisdiction. The LM Treatise, I think, offers us an opportunity to examine how the Alexanders conceived of kingship itself, and how best to give expression to their claims to supreme jurisdiction over their subjects. The LM Treatise frames the settlement of cross-border disputes as a matter of specifically royal concern. It doesn't seek to override the activities of local power brokers, but it situates the process for determining such disputes squarely in the hands of its own officials, the sheriffs. Just a few years later, Alexander III would make another international agreement, this one with Norway, and this one too intended to extend Scottish royal control over the inhabitants of the Western Isles in place of that of the Norwegian king. This agreement too did not substantively alter the circumstances under which these people lived, but it did make it quite clear that the authority or the jurisdiction to which they owed ultimate obedience was that of the Scottish king. The LM Treatise, I think, should be interpreted not merely as a local system of customary law, for this it remained throughout the Middle Ages, but as a means for the 13th century Scottish crown to make a clear statement about its jurisdiction over the borderlands, a statement made not merely to the English king, but to the Scottish king's own subjects. Well, thank you so, so much for those fascinating answers to our questions. Thank you so much again for sharing your work. It's been fascinating listening to you talk about your most recent research. It sounds like such a great ongoing project, and I can't wait to read all about it when you have it um, published, of course. So and I'm, I'm simply going to say, um, Purple, look out for it, you know, forthcoming volume on its own, or perhaps a, a part of the facility from the Steer Society. So I'm hoping to have it all done by... It won't be 2021 anymore. That was the original plan. I hope now to have it all done by the end of 2022. We can talk again then. That sounds absolutely fantastic. I'm sure all of our listeners uh, will be really interested in reading about it as well. Um, and they'll all have really enjoyed your talk and really enjoyed your answers to our questions. So thank you very much. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Crossing Borders Contesting Boundaries podcast, the last episode of the academic year. 
We'd like to extend special thanks to Professor Cynthia Neville for sharing some of her most recent research in an excellent and thought-provoking keynote paper. Before we go, we'd also like to thank all of our speakers who have shared their research throughout the year, and thanks too to the members of the Mensa community who have hosted our episodes. Thanks to the musician Aitwa, whose music has opened and closed each of our episodes, and which you're listening to right now. You can find out more about Aitwa's music by visiting their website, www.aitwa.net. That's A-I-T-U-A.net. Finally, we'd like to warmly invite you to Memphis' 15th annual summer conference, which continues our exploration of the theme of crossing borders, contesting boundaries. Held between Monday 19th and Wednesday 21st of July, this online conference will feature the work of postgraduate students and early career academics from across the world. To find out how to register, follow us on Twitter at Durham Memsa. Find us on Facebook by searching Memsa Durham 2020-2021 or email us at memsa.committee at durham.ac.uk. Thank you for listening and goodbye.